For today's scripture text, we'll be looking in the Gospel of Mark, that shortest of Gospels, uh, second Gospel in the New Testament, second book in the New Testament. Um, Contrary to your bulletin, I'll be reading from chapter 4, verse 37 through 520. Let us give careful attention to the Word of God. Mark 4.37, a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Be quiet, still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this, even the wind? And the waves obey him. And they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would, not, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside nearby. And the demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. So he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and the people were amazed. Thus further God's uh, reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, you might speak to us through your word, that spirit which inspired Mark, Peter's associate, Peter's translator, to record a short vignette summarizing the work of Christ for sinners like us. We pray that that same spirit would work in our hearts this day to make this word alive and active uh, in a special way in our hearts today. Uh, 
uh, and help us to submit to your word, which is always uh, your speech to us. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage today is from, of course, the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the Gospels. German theologian Martin Koller had famously called the Gospel of Mark a passion narrative, a story of the Passion Week of Christ, a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And that extended introduction in Mark, it reads like the action in an old Batman comic book. As you might recall, the Batman comic creators, they want you to know when a well-placed blow has achieved its goal. So there'll be a blow in a picture and then there'll be a text bubble and it'll say wham, crash, bang, pow, oof, zonk, smack. You know the genre, some of you do more than me. For the record, I was not a comic book kid. I read motor manuals. Well, but I saw a few of those, right? They're, they're, they're illustrating that there's an effect from the action. We have this image of Batman fighting off a whole horde and all of this language is present there. As we look at the Gospel of Mark, there is a fast pace to the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The scene change and the drama on the way to Holy Week is head spinning. And we see this by Mark's favorite word. One of his favorite words is a Greek word, euthus, right? Which is the idea of immediately, right? And the way in which the text moves, it is, it is fast. He is immediately moving from one place to the next. Jesus is constantly on the move, teaching about the kingdom of God, and then he's casting out demons. And then he's showing what the kingdom of God is like by healing, casting out demons, teaching his word again. And so there's these like Mark and sandwiches, we call it a lot. There's a lot going on in Mark. Well, a short survey of the first few chapters of Mark confirms this fast-paced action of Jesus. Just in Mark 1, we see early in Mark 1 the temptation of Christ by Satan, right? And Jesus is triumphant being tested by Satan. So we see in the Batman language, wham! Immediately, a man with an unclean spirit appears to Jesus in 123. Bang! Then immediately, Jesus, he sees Simon's mother sick, and he heals her. Pow! Then he casts out demons, 132 through 34. Bloop! He preaches, and he casts out demons in 139. Clank! And then he heals a leper, 140 through 45. Oof! In Mark 2 and 3, he heals a paralytic in chapter 2, 3 through 12. Kapow! He teaches in 2.13. Zonk! He heals a disabled person. Then he heals many in 3, 1 and 10. Clonk! Then he casts out unclean spirits in 3.11. Smack! He sends his disciples out to preach and cast demons themselves and to be like him. Bang! Yet, beloved Jesus is no comic book hero. He's not a character created to fuel our imaginations, nor the pockets of DC or Marvel Comics. He's the Lord of glory, who has come to claim a kingdom by his words and his works. His words and his works are so intertwined that his supernatural activities are to be unpacked by his preaching, but also his preaching is to be unpacked by his supernatural activities.
Mark is telling his audience that the supernatural acts of Jesus are all signs showing what the kingdom of God is and that it has come. The kingdom has come and this is what it's like. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Look at the miracles of Jesus. And what is it in these earthly signs? It's a restoration to the best possible situation in this sin-cursed world. Furthermore, the nature of Jesus' supernatural acts point not only to what the kingdom is like, but also to the extent of his kingdom. As our Christmas hymns say, far as the curse be found, far as the curse be found. The extent of Christ's kingdom reach, uh, kingdom, the extent of his kingdom's reach is this. When God in his full kingdom reign comes, he will restore creation. He'll destroy demonic strongholds and he'll establish righteousness. He'll banish sickness and usher in health. He'll conquer death with life and he'll replace hunger with plenty. So let's look a little closer to our text today. Having established what Jesus is doing with his word and deed ministry, let's look a little closer. We began reading in 437 today to see the transition from a wild sea a crazy, wild, uncontrollable, oh, we're going to die kind of sea. And Jesus says, shush, be quiet, and the water is glass. That passage, of course, we don't have time to get into it today, but in the Old Covenant and in the New, oftentimes the waters are a place of darkness. It's a place of evil, right? It's from there that we see Leviathan. It's in the new heavens and the new earth. Of course, there's, there's, there is no sea, right? So the imagery that we have here is Jesus destroying Satan's stronghold in the darkness of the waters. So when we move from Mark 4, we see, of course, Jesus has defeated Satan's navy, as it were. But as we move into Mark 5, the question is, how about his army? We're moving from a wild sea to a wild man. Now, the setting of the battle is this city of the Gerasenes, or the Gadarenes. Now it's worth noting that some will point out, why is the, the Bible using different words here? Don't they understand that a city's a city? Is it the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes? Make up your mind. And the answer is, well, it's both. Think about this. If you're talking to someone and you live in, let's say, uh, as our, uh, our brother Will uh, Nelson used to, if you live in Pahrump, and someone from New York asks you, where do you live? Are you going to tell them Pahrump? No, you're going to say, I live in Las Vegas. Because they're like, ah, I got you, Southern Nevada, next to California. Makes sense. Okay. You're not going to say, well, I live kind of near Las Vegas. There's this podunk place called Pahrump. And yeah, I live over there. You're not going to waste your time. You get tired of that. You just say, I live in Las Vegas. However, if you're meeting somebody and they live in Henderson and they say, where do you live? Of course, you're going to say, I live in Pahrump. Right? It's a similar thing with... Uh, the, you know, the Gadarenes or uh, the Gerasenes. Don't get caught up on that. Mark, writing to a, uh, you know, uh, Matthew, of course, writes to a Jewish audience, and he prefers to use Gadarenes. Mark, on the other, is writing to a broader audience, including Gentiles, and he prefers Gerasenes. Each location would have meaning for their intended audiences. Well, at any rate, whether we call it the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, it's an unclean land full of Gentiles, tombs, and pigs. In the words of Paul describing Israel, of course, and or describing the Gentiles, 
He'd say it was a land alien to the commonwealth of Israel and covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That would be a fair summary of Gentileville in the Old Covenant. But of course, we know that Paul uh, has an ax to grind because he's the the apostle to the Gentiles. And we're going to see in our passage today, Jesus does too. Jesus does too. So we see this place as a place that is in the wilderness, kind of like uh, Jesus in the wilderness temptation with Satan. Jesus ends up fighting Satan on a home court advantage in Satan's favor. Well, in a similar way, we see Jesus going to where the, uh, the Gentiles are, right? Again, there's a home court advantage here. And Jesus brings this home court advantage war in Satan's favor against the God of this age, as Paul calls Satan in 2 Corinthians 4.4. So we're going to see as our passage today uh, that the battle involves three basic relationships, and we'll unpack these fairly quickly. The first relationship, of course, is Jesus versus Satan, the rival sovereign versus the entrenched king. So Jesus versus Satan. Jesus is coming to reclaim a kingdom, and we're going to see that battle. The second point we'll look at is the new sovereign, that's Jesus, and the previous king's subjects, that is the people. And then lastly, we'll look at the sovereign and the old king's slave, or Jesus versus legion, or Jesus versus formerly legion, perhaps. Sort of a prince theme there. Well, let's look at this. Jesus versus Satan. Upon arrival, Jesus, in Mark's favorite word, is immediately greeted by a man with an unclean spirit. Now we have to ask, what kind of meeting is this? Is it a meet and greet? Is it donuts with dad? Is it a muffins with mom? Well, the verb can be used either for well or for woe for this idea of meeting. But I think that if we look at what is going on here, the context makes it very clear of what's going on. The context is that of this legion character defacing God's creation as, of course, Satan himself is bent upon. In 5.5, we see this legion character cutting himself. A normal man does not do this on his own accord. Upon meeting Jesus, Jesus, uh, this possessed man cries out, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you don't torment me, in verse 7. So I want to submit to you that this demon comes to meet Jesus for well, for woe, not for well. Okay? Yet he immediately realizes he's outmatched, or at least so we are to think. So in 5.6, we see that this demoniac bows down before Jesus. The verb used there can be used for worship or just simply to get on your knees, right? So we see various interpretations there. We see in the NIV, it's fell on his knees. In the New American Standard, it's bow down. The KJV, the uh, American Standard Version, they have worship. I would submit to you he's not here to worship in the fear of holiness. The element of fear present in the demoniac does lead us to conclude that this word for bow down or worship, however we're going to take it, it is one of fearful uh, prostration, right? He does bow down in fear. Hence, the NAS translation is probably the most helpful in understanding verse 6, and that is, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Now, we must take into account 
not only the fact that this demoniac runs up almost to go to a wrestling challenge where you shake the hand and then he you know, bows down and cries uncle, as it were, um, not only what we need to take into account what he's doing, but we need to take into account who he is. This Gadarene demoniac is certainly possessed by a demon, and he's not a psychologically distressed person. He's not cutting himself for emotional relief. He's not preparing to establish the Sid Vicious street cred as a punk rocker. No, there is something wrong with this man. He is possessed. We know this because he has supernatural knowledge of Jesus. He cries out to Jesus, you are the son of the most high God. Hold the phone. We're in a Gentile place. Nobody knows of Jesus. And this guy has supernatural knowledge. This is, who, who are you? You're the son of the most high God, right? Now, this language, son of the most high God, is commonly found in the Old Testament for non-Israelite people who are describing the God of Israel, right? Um, so, you know, this guy has, uh, he's a demon-possessed individual, okay? He didn't read this from the newspaper. Further proof that this is demon possession and not psychological trauma or a coping mechanism is the demon-possessed man's knowledge of his end. Do not torment me right? He knows what's coming. In Matthew's gospel even adds, don't torment me before the time, right? So we, we get this demoniac is, it's legit. It is not somebody that's suffering from psychological issues. This man is under the control of the evil one and his minions. Well, what of this demon's rank? What sort of demon was it that prostrates himself before Jesus' feet? Jesus himself asks as much in chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus says, what's your name? His response is, legion, for we are many. Now, other demoniacs in Jesus' ministry were comparatively mild. Jesus commands them to come out, and they come out without a word, right? Matthew 17, 18, Mark 7, 25, just a walk in the park for Jesus, but this demon-possessed man has thousands of demons in him, so many that he or they, and it's fascinating talking about pronouns with legion, how do you address that, right? And there's, no, really, there's, there's argument in the text, in the commentaries about why did they use this pronoun as opposed to that pronoun? And my answer to that is Mark is not normalizing something that is fundamentally bizarre. Mark sees that tension. So there's no normalization of the pronouns here. It's, it's he, it's they, it's... Who knows, right? Well, this demon-possessed man has thousands of demons in him. If you remember anything from you know, Greek and Roman history, a legion is 6,000 soldiers, right? It's well-known, 6,000 soldiers. So therefore, this gathering demoniac is the most powerful demon-possessed person that Jesus encounters in his ministry. The military nature of his or their name should not fall on deaf ears. This legion is an outpost of Satan's minions about their chief's business of defacing God's creation and disrupting God's peace. Now remember, from the beginning of his reign over the fallen creation, he has set up the purpose of decreation. That is what Satan is about. Such, of course, is the case here. But Jesus tells legion, get out. Jesus is ordering to cut their initial mission of destruction short, to fail in their duty, to ignore their commander-in-chief, to stop destroying this man made in the image of God. 
it would seem as though this seemingly docile bunch of demons would merely comply. They've prostrated themselves before him, hoping that Jesus will not torture them before the end of time. However, that is not what occurs. As we look in the text, look at verse 7 for a minute. Verse 7 is instructive. The KJV reads, I adjured thee by God that thou torment me not. Now, I want to submit to you that what we have going on here is not just a desire to save their skin, to not undergo suffering in the demonic world, to not be defeated. None of that stuff is what's going on here. Everett Ferguson, a New Testament theologian, he, he notes that this language of I adjure thee by God is actually a magical incantation. He is trying to use a magical incantation to uh, invoke a superior power so he's trying to use the name of God, which in the ancient world, having a name, knowing someone's name, was to have power over them. So he is bowing on the ground and trying to give the best uppercut shot that he has while he's down there. I adjure you by the name of God that thou not torment me. Now this is an exorcism formula that we find in the demon's language. And he's using this exorcism formula to try to exorcise Jesus. Therefore, these docile, prostrated demons are engaged in deception like their father, Satan, the father of lies, that old liar. Notice, however, that Jesus is unmoved. Our Lord is the impenetrable servant of the Lord, God's champion who will not fail. His face is set like flint to regain God's kingship over creation. And he regains God's kingship over creation by conquering the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent battle with Satan and his minions. That's what we see all throughout the ministry of Jesus. The issue of the demon's desire to enter the pigs, 5, 10 through 13, it ends up spilling a lot of ink by many writers. And it's led some people to suppose that here we have Jesus fooling the pigs in, or fooling the demons into destruction. Now, whatever the demons seeking habitation in the pigs and of the pigs rushing to their death in the sea means, and I'm not going to pretend to, uh, to know, nor do we actually have time for it today, I just do want to point out two things that are certain about that. The demons are admitting their defeat by Jesus because they begged him to let them enter the swine. And also, the demons give a clear picture of the ultimate purpose of Satan in all of his operations. It doesn't usually look this way, but the end is always the same. Satan, in all of his operations, is interested in defacing or destroying God's creation. This is a picture of what would have happened to the man whom they inhabited had Jesus not come along and ordered them to leave and broke off the chains and stopped the cutting and got him out of the tombs and got him dressed and in his right mind. In this account of Jesus versus Satan, we see that Jesus, that seed of the woman, singular seed of the woman, has overcome these wild seeds of the servant, serpent in this battle, taking a man back from the usurper just as he overcame the wild sea. Christ has bound Satan and is now ransacking his house, as it were. Next, we'll look at the relationship between Jesus and the people. The events that transpired in this farming village of the Gerasenes that day, it must have been amazing from the residents' perspective. 
Think about that. Here's Legion, for lack of a better name. Now he's dressed, he's sitting, he's of sound mind. The people of the village, they remember this demoniac as, oh, walk away from him. Oh, stay away from him. He might beat you with his chains. Oh, I don't know what to do with him. Oh, we employed all of the best doctors and all of the best mental health experts, and we've all come up bankrupt. Oh, we should be excited to see this man reclaimed. Well, of course, that's not the case. Perhaps he had family and friends in town. Whatever Legion's previous relationship was with these inhabitants of the city, it would appear that this would have been an occasion for much rejoicing on behalf of everyone who knew or knew of Legion. But this makes, of course, the people's reaction much more difficult to understand. The interaction between Jesus and the people of the town was very short. In fact, it's not an interaction at all. People come out and they beg Jesus, just like the demons begged to leave into the pigs. Well, the people come and they beg Jesus to leave. And Jesus left. Certainly the loss of 2,000 swine for a farming community doesn't endure Jesus to the, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, chamber of commerce. Um, Undoubtedly, pig farming was a major source of income if they got 2,000 herd of swine. Undoubtedly, there's going to be some suffering. However, I want you to see that these people, in sending Jesus away, it's not just their economic interests. It's a misaligned economic interest. The people's actions betray a greater sin than merely being upset over a year's uh, salary, as it were, a year's herd of pigs, however. By their actions, these people show that they value the pigs, that is the things of this world, more than legion, a man brought under God's kingdom and remade in God's image. That is disturbing, that they loved their money more than the image of God being restored. And it's also greater still disturbing that they send away God's son, fearful that he might require them to change too. Such is always the case. Some reject the Lord, regardless of what they see or know. Remember, many saw the sign of Jonah and would not believe. And that's the promise that Jesus gives to a questioning bunch of Jews, right? What sign are you going to give us? I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of Man. That'll have to do it, full stop. Well, I want to direct your attention before we close to the relationship between Jesus and Legion. Jesus does not merely arrest the demon's activity on legion, though. Jesus had come, tied up the strong man, rummaged through the strong man's stolen goods. In the midst of the strong man's goods was a chosen vessel to showcase God's grace to the Gentiles. Legion would be Christ's preacher. Now, within a short period one day, Legion experiences the result and goal of Jesus' cosmic battle with Satan and his minions. Legion was translated from the kingdom of darkness. Previous to Jesus' coming, Legion was a slave to Satan, directed to go about Satan's business. Mark's description of Legion before Jesus rescued him from Satan's grips pictures this for us clearly. Think about the picture of Legion in the text. Verse 15 and verse 3, we're implicitly told that Legion was naked and excluded from society. Ephesians 2, 1 and Mark 5, 3, he's as good as dead, dwelling amongst the dead. 
The power of demons over his body rendered him outside the realm of human help. Mark makes it plain that Legion had previously been bound with chains and shackles, yet he's incapable of restraint at the time Jesus comes to him because no one was strong enough to subdue him. The picture of helplessness is stark. In fact, Mark's gospel emphasizes the extreme strength and violence of the demoniac here, more so than the other synoptic gospels. The whole account leads up to this conclusion. If Jesus can't help him, he's doomed. He's doomed. But Jesus, of course, can help him because Jesus is the stronger man. Further, Jesus does help him because that is his mission, to call sinners to repentance. Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And what picture of lostness is there more than being inhabited by 6,000 demons, cutting yourself uncontrollably, and of course, uh, being uh, breaking chains regularly? Well, beloved, that, of course, is Jesus' mission, to call sinners, like legion, to repentance. And how else can sinners be brought to repentance, lest, of course, Jesus help them? Upon Jesus' triumph over Satan's hordes, legion is transformed into a new creation. The old things have passed away and the new have come. Satan, the usurper's authority, is gone, and God's kingship is established. As a new creation, he's translated to the kingdom of God's own son with Christ himself as his new king. Instead of being a slave to sin, he's now a slave to righteousness. Whereas Legion had been naked, now he's clothed. He was noisy, now he's calm. He was an outcast from society, now he's worthy of acceptance. Before he was a person to be reviled, now he's a person to be rejoiced and sung over. Legion responds to this new king. Legion responds to Jesus with the heavenly orientation of faith. Legion is not out for a free meal or to receive Jesus' blessings for naught. No, this is no John 6 account for Legion. No, he has been radically changed at his core. We find proof of Legion's true regeneration, his true conversion, in the similarities between his account and uh, Simeon's mother's account. In Mark's, I'm sorry, Simon's mother account. In Mark's gospel, Simon's mother we see in the early portions of Mark, Simon's mother acts as the initial paradigm of what faith in Jesus looks like. You remember early in the account, uh, Simon's uh, mother is sick, Jesus comes along, heals her, and she serves. There's the effects of the fall in all of its you know, awfulness, uh, Jesus comes along, redeems a people, and they serve. That is the pattern that we see in Simon's mother. As we said earlier, decreation is the hallmark of Satan's rule. In order for Jesus to reverse the defacing of God's creation, Jesus must bind Satan first that, they, uh, might, that he might not pursue his end any longer. And of course, again, this is what we see with Simon's mom. Perhaps it is the shortest presentation of the power of the gospel and its effect that it has on God's people. 131, here's the passage I was looking for. 131 of Mark, and he, that is Jesus, came to her and raised her up, and taking her by the hand, the fever left her, and she waited on him. 
analyzed from the perspective of the order of salvation, we note that regeneration, God making us new, is followed by faith, and faith is followed by service to the sovereign. So this is the same pattern that we see operative in the life of legion. Legion is legion, right? Jesus comes, casts this legion of demons out, and legion asks, can I follow you? Can I follow you? Now, oddly enough, Jesus says no, but we're going to see that the no is yes. Mark 5.18 tells us that contrary to the, begging, to the people's begging Jesus to leave them, Legion wants to follow Jesus. Morna Hooker points out that the way in which Legion begged Jesus that he might be with him is reminiscent of the phrase used in 3.14 when Jesus appoints the 12 to be with him. This similar use of language suggests that Legion is asking to be Jesus' disciple. Jesus denying Legion the opportunity to follow him is not significant grounds to reject the possibility that Legion is asking to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus had come to the lost sheep of Israel, of course, and the mission of the Gentiles is legitimate. However, redemptive historically, we see that's going to fall on the shoulders of the apostles. Jesus, of course, says, uh, you know, I've come for, for, for Israel, right? And there's that account where uh, someone says, but, but even the dogs get to eat of the, uh, the crumbs, right? Certainly, we see that in the life of Jesus. This is looking forward to the Gentile mission. Although Jesus will not let Legion join him, Jesus does leave him there to jumpstart the proclamation of the good news in his homeland, regardless of how little Legion knows of Christ. Legion knows that Christ is life. He knows implicitly that he is the only redeemer of God's elect. Legion knows that Christ is life, and that is enough. So Jesus commissions him, go home to your friends and tell them the great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. Forthrightly, Legion took his order from Christ and he began to proclaim the news of the good news that the Lord had done for him. So filled with joy and gratitude that he soon included the entire city where he was living to be the sphere of his missionary activity. You can see that in Luke 8.39 if you're interested. Mark states that he proclaimed the good news to the Decapolis, or the Roman-ruled Gentile-majority grouping of ten cities. Decapolis means ten cities. Later in Jesus' ministry, and we can see the proof of his missionary endeavors. Um, nowhere in Mark do we have any evidence of anybody ever going to the Decapolis. But later in Jesus' city... When Jesus reaches the Decapolis, people know of Jesus, and they bring him a deaf man with speaking problems. This is Mark 7. Notice that unlike the account of the Gerasene demoniac, where the demoniac knows about Jesus because he has supernatural revelation, knowing about his end as a demon, there's none of that when we get to Mark 7. Nope. In Mark 7, people know about Jesus, and they bring the sick. Why? Well, or a deaf man because they've been told about him. They have heard about Jesus. They've been told about Jesus. The only evidence in the text of Mark for this knowledge rests on Legion's proclamation of Jesus in the Decapolis. Now, beloved, this story of Legion, this account of Legion, is the story of mankind's reality apart from Christ. 
but it's also the story of the Christian's heavenly seated reality in Christ. So the Gerasene demoniac is the picture of every Christian. He's been rescued from Satan and the demon's power. We too were once dead in our transgressions and sins, Paul tells us. And we too, of course, if we're honest, were hell-bent on decreation and destruction. But Jesus has come. The war has been won. He ultimately triumphs over Satan at the cross. And there is a big Batman sound for that. I can't think of one. But that's the sound. That is the sound. He ultimately triumphs over Satan at the cross and then the resurrection. And now he, in his ascended life, now is taking the spoils of the kingdom that he is creating. He is taking the spoils, the spoils of war, that war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Jesus is that victorious final warrior who will come and lead all of God's saints to heaven. That's what he is doing now by the preaching of the word across the world. As people hear about Jesus and come to faith in him, Jesus is taking a people. He is taking the spoils of war in a train up until heaven. The kingdom has been inaugurated. It's been begun. But yet it awaits the consummation of all things. The last day when God will sort out the wheat from the tares. And of course the demonic revelation that they have. Have you come to uh, uh, punish us or torment us before the last day? Beloved, there is a last day. And it is that day that the wheat and the tares will be sorted out. Well, that's the day that we look forward to. So the question I have for you as we look at this text today is who are you like in the text? Who are you like in our text today? Are you like the people who see the mighty work of Christ in doing what everyone knew was impossible? Lord, this Legion guy is restored. That's amazing. I should be stoked. I want to know this guy. But of course we see that doesn't happen. We see this pathetic situation with Legion. Doctors couldn't help. His family couldn't help. Let's just ignore him and maybe he'll go away. But are we those people who see the reverse of the curse, the reordering of God's peace? And like the people, we say, I'll pass. You know, it's not meeting my felt needs. I'm not sure about that. Or maybe the cost is too much. Or are you like Legion? who sees God's grace, his favor despite our demerits, and you bow to the King Jesus. And upon getting up, are you asking, Lord, here I am, how shall I serve? Beloved, there's basically two responses when we see the great acts of God in history. Do we respond in faith and repentance, or do we respond with, meh? Think about that today, and ponder that this Lord's, this Lord's Day and this week. Let's pray. Father, there's uh, heavy things um, that the claims of Christ are ultimate. We know, of course, that these people that he heals and legion, uh, they, they go on to die. The, the miracles of Jesus are not there in and of themselves. They're pointing to a kingdom where there will be eternal healing, where there is no sin, where there is no death. There's no cancer. We don't lose our loved ones. There's no tears. And we look forward to that place. 
trusting that Jesus will deliver it to us. And Father, as we struggle here and now, remind us of your good purpose in establishing a kingdom through the work of your Son. Grant us faith that we might believe that. We pray in Jesus' name. Uh, also, we're grateful for the opportunity to participate in that very kingdom by sending preachers and by uh, supporting diaconates that your gospel might be preached and that the legion might be confronted with the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.